Would you lift up your glow tracks? Some of you were having a hard time finding it because they put it in the uh, Carolina Evangelism envelope, but I think you all have it now. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless these seeds of truth. Father in heaven, we hold in our hands another seed of truth this evening. And wherever it's planted, I pray that you will water it with the Holy Spirit and touch a heart for heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday evening, I got a call from Dan Jackson who uh, told me that he had a situation that had come up where he was not going to be able to be here. And I thought, oh boy, what am I going to do? But then I thought of my good friend Gordon Beats, who I always call when I'm in trouble. And he never says no to me. If he can do it, he comes. And I am just so thankful because when I called him, Dan told me to tell him, hey, tell him he's getting a paycheck from the North American division, so he owes me one. <laughs> I didn't even have to tell him that. But as soon as I told him the situation with Don Schneider's passing away and his need to be there for tonight and for this afternoon for that funeral service, uh, Gordon Beat said yes, absolutely. You know, for 19 years, Dr. Beats served as the president of Southern Adventist University. But now, as he is retired, he's been retreaded. And he's now serving as a part-time director for higher education and the director of the Association of Adventist Colleges and Universities. I have always been blessed by every message that he has brought before us. And today, his message entitled, Clean Hands, Dirty Hearts, I know will touch our hearts as we prepare for this message. And Gordon, let's have a word of prayer together and let's pray for each other as we sing our song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. Father in heaven, what a unique title. We are just coming before you, Lord, to uplift Gordon Beats your servant leader, as he opens the word of the living God to us and the message that you have placed upon his heart to share with us today. Lord, anoint him with your presence. Surround him as he shares this message with us tonight. And we ask this not only for him, but also for our hearts that we'll be receptive to that message as the Holy Spirit speaks to us as we sing this song of prayer. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me.
It was nice to hear the stories about Pisgah Academy, and you can be very proud of your academic environment here. And because I'm still in education and am, as Les mentioned, the director for higher education for the North American Division, I thought I might take a couple of moments at the beginning of my presentation this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, <laughs> to share with you some of my convictions about education. My grandfather moved to North Dakota somewhere around the turn of the century and built a house on some homesteaded land uh, in North Dakota. He went to a Seventh-day Adventist camp meeting and got one of the early German translations of a book. And the book said in it that Ellen White had, this was a book Ellen White had written, that it was no longer safe to send our children to public schools. Well, that was a problem for him because he'd homesteaded a piece of land that was too far away from the church to have his eventually nine children participate in Adventist education. But it was only a problem to be solved for him. He went close to the church, found a piece of land that he could purchase and another piece of land that he could rent. And then a few days later, hired two harvesting steam engines tied them to the house and dragged it to the new land that was close to the church where he could have his children in Seventh-day Adventist education. That level of commitment is not as, is too, a little too rare today. But those nine children all participated and most became actually workers in the Seventh-day Adventist church as they went to Cheyenne River Academy and then to Union College later on. And my father, of course, was one of those who went to Union College. That level of commitment is needed in the church today because in reality what Ellen White said about a hundred years ago is more true today, is it not? It's no longer safe to have our children in public education. Some of you may say, well, that's great for K-12, but, you know, higher education is not that important. I would make the argument that it's more important than K-12 because that's the time when your young person is leaving home, making their own decisions about faith, about friends, about marriage, about lots of things. What environment do you want them in when they're making those kinds of decisions? They need to be in an environment where they have mentors that are Seventh-day Adventist Christians and where there are other students who support their values and their faith. There are studies that have been done on the value development of the 18 to 21-year-old 
and those values are most impacted first by the friends they form and second by the mentors they connect with or their teachers. And so I would appeal to you to consider Seventh-day Adventist higher education as well as K-12 and consider it to be a very important piece. Some of you are saying, well, it's not, not possible for that to be financed. It's just too expensive. Don't make that decision until you've at least applied and see the scholarships that are available and see how inexpensive it can be. One of the projects, actually, that I'm involved with, with all 13 of our institutions across the United States, is figuring out ways to collaborate to reduce the cost of higher education. So that's something that's on our agenda. But this evening, it's clean hands and dirty heart. And some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. But he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. The Pharisees. There's trouble in Jerusalem. Word is spreading that crowds are following Jesus. The hierarchy in Jerusalem is fearful that they would lose their grip on power. What's up with this upstart teacher? Why are all the people following him? What's going on? He didn't get approval from the Sanhedrin to go out and teach, and all these people are following him. What is happening? Jesus didn't show up at Passover that particular season, and so they sent the JBI to Galilee. 
the JBI, the Jerusalem Bureau of Investigation, to Galilee to see if they could find some scandal to publish in the Jerusalem Post. They were looking for something they could accuse Jesus of, some infraction of the law, something that could undermine his ministry. And what scandal do they come up with? They travel 65 miles as a crow flies, 75 miles on foot from Jerusalem to uh, probably Nazareth, close by Galilee. And what do they ask Jesus? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Why do your disciples break the traditions? They don't wash their hands before they eat. I imagine that they had observed Jesus for a few days after they arrived around Lake Galilee. That caused quite a stir among the crowds. They've been sent from Jerusalem, whispered people in the crowd. They're evaluating the work of Jesus. They're checking Jesus out. They're trying to find something wrong with what he's teaching. What did they see while they were checking Jesus out? Well, in Matthew 14, 13 to 21, the miracle of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fishes, these Pharisees and teachers of the law were probably in the crowd and maybe would have had some bread and fish. But when it comes to asking a question of Jesus, what do they ask? Where did the bread come from? No. Why didn't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? And then following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has his disciples get into a boat to travel to the other side of the lake, and a storm confronts them. And Jesus walks to them on the water. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law heard about the miracle as they shadowed Jesus. But when it came time to ask Jesus a question, it is not, how in the world did you walk on water? No. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Inside of a couple of days, a couple of spectacular miracles are performed, and the best question they can come up with is, why didn't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Is this the best they could do to find something to accuse Jesus of? It's like they're standing in a public restroom watching to see who washes their hands after they use the facilities. They might have well asked Jesus where he bought his sandals or how he enjoys the weather in Galilee. You know, I guess we can joke about their nearsightedness. But the tragedy is that these gentlemen, these learned leaders, this Jerusalem Bureau of Investigation, considered this to be a vital question. The tragedy is they were serious. They were deadly serious. It reminds me of a nursery rhyme. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you there? I frightened a little mouse under a chair. The mouse was more important than meeting the queen because the mouse was more important to a cat 
What's important to the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the investigators? Tradition. Tradition is so important. More important than feeding 5,000, more important than walking on water. This phenomena of focusing on the insignificant, uh, the majoring on minors, was not new to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Isaiah had seen such narrowness when he reflected on how they were careful to fast but not feed the hungry. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer a shelter? Fasting and not eating food is okay, maybe even good for you now and then, but better share your food with the hungry, provide the wanderer with shelter. Believing that the earth is 6,000 years old is okay, but maybe taking care of that creation is even better. Micah spoke of, the, spoke of this injustice when he compared generous offerings with justice. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? He has showed you, O man, what is good, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. There's a danger of us focusing on the washing of hands instead of Jesus. Will the Lord be pleased with the perfect church attendance, working as a deacon and giving 30% of your income? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The trivializing of truth was not some new problem that Jesus faced, and it's not really new to us either. It's much easier to argue about women's ordination than treat all women with respect. It's much easier to argue about the age of the earth than to care for the earth. It's easier to discuss rings than gossip or talk about eating meat than eating sugar or pay attention to jewelry than honesty. Those things that are easily identifiable and easily avoided can make us feel spiritually elite. We become so used to thinking the same way, believing the same way, acting the same old traditional way that we don't think out of our spiritual box and we figure we have everything figured out. Ellen White says, whenever the message of truth comes home to souls with special power, Satan stirs up his agents to start a dispute over some minor question. Thus he seeks to attract attention from the real issue. The questions that are most concern us are, do I believe with saving faith on the Son of God? Is my life in harmony with the divine law? When we are seeking to protect the traditions of our religion instead of asking if we believe on the Son of God and are living as he would have us live, at that point, religion itself becomes a drug, a distraction, an addiction that distracts us from the real issues in our lives. There can be an addiction to traditional ways. They are comfortable, they are known, we feel secure. 
we're not disturbed by thinking deeply about spiritual things. What should be our concern today? Do I believe with saving faith on the Son of God? Is my life in harmony with the divine law? The American Psychiatric Association has published a definition of addiction. Addiction is a complex condition, a brain disease that is manifest by compulsive substance used despite harmful consequences. People have addiction, have an intense focus on using a certain substance, such as alcohol or drugs, to the point it takes over their life. The scribes and the Pharisees actually felt like their life was taken over by God, but it was taken over by the traditions and not by God. It wasn't love God as you love your neighbor and love your neighbor as you love God. In Luke, it tells us, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God and love for man will affect how we live. It will affect our dress code, our eating habits, our Sabbath observance. But first things must be first. Attitudes of hate for another person sometimes takes priority over what you wear, and insecurity over your relationship with God takes precedence over what you're eating. A lack of sense of love for Jesus or his love for you is certainly more important than not smoking. Jesus' response to their question about why his disciples didn't wash their hands is, is rather instructive because he points them to a problem that they were aware of. And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? Here is a tradition that violated a commandment. God says, honor your father and mother. Anyone who speaks disrespectfully of the father and mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own traditions. This was a, particularly a tradition where a, a younger person could hoard everything that he had and keep everything he had and not support his parents in their old age because he had declared that all of his belongings were Corbin would go to the temple. And so it was a way of violating the commandment to be supportive of your parents. And so these same teachers of the law that were so concerned about washing the hands had dirty hearts. These teachers of the laws and Pharisees were concerned about why Jesus didn't, didn't have his disciples ceremoniously wash their hands before they ate, and they'd worked out a strategy to break the fifth commandment. They would allow people who wanted to keep their wealth declare that it belonged to the temple. And when they died, it would all go to the temple, and their parents would not be helped. Any benefit that parents might derive from their children was now a gift to the temple. Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy. 
It certainly was not the way to win friends and influence people. And it's not the way that the Carolina Trust Department operates. Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy and certainly it is not a way to win friends and influence people. The disciples were concerned about how direct Jesus was. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Man-made ideas as commands from God. Their hearts are far from me. But why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? As Mark reports this, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Jesus points out that it's not the environment we're in that makes us spiritually unfit for heaven. It's not where we live or what we eat or what we wear or how we wash our hands. That which prepares us for heaven is internal, not external. It's a heart commitment. The disciples came to him, Jesus. Do you realize you've offended the Pharisees by what you said? They were a little concerned. These Pharisees had a lot of power. I mean, this was part of the Sanhedrin. I mean, you know, the disciples probably were still thinking about making Jesus king, and this was not a good political move. Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my Heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into the ditch. Blind guides leading the blind. It's an interesting visualization, isn't it? A blind guide seems like an oxymoron. Leading blind people because they became so focused on the externals, the behavioral externals that were put together in the Talmud over hundreds of years, that that was the only way you could be righteous in their eyes. And actually the only people that could be righteous were the people that had a lot of money and could afford to perform all the things that they had to perform. The disciples noticed the effects that the words of Jesus had, and they said, hey, no reason to make enemies. These church leaders, you know, they have some authority in Jerusalem. You better be careful. But there's a time to offend. When traditions of men keep people from experiencing the love of God, when the rules of culture stand in the place of love for people, when the gospel is replaced by tradition, and when religious behavior out of habit with no personal experience with Jesus, then it's time to offend. The idea that traditions of piety were worthless was so startling that Peter and the other disciples did, they didn't grasp the full import of what was being said. Could Jesus really mean what is being said? So Peter, ever the spokesman for the disciples, said, Explain this parable to us. Don't you understand yet, Jesus asked? Anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes out the sewer. But the words you speak comes from your heart. That's what defiles you. 
For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Now, it's not a comment on healthful living. Jesus here is not suggesting we shouldn't wash our hands. The issue is not healthful living, but holy living. How do we have holy living? And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law returned to Jerusalem. They sat down for a good meal with those who had sent them to Galilee to follow Jesus. They were careful to perform ritual washing of their hands before they ate. And that meant they took a minimum amount of water, and the minimum amount was that which could be held in half of an eggshell. They poured a small amount of it on their fingers and palm, first the hand and then the other, being careful to tilt the hand so the water ran from the palm to the wrist, but no farther. They were fastidious, making sure that the hands were washed in a ceremonial fashion. They were fastidious in making sure that the drink that they had that evening was strained so they wouldn't consume any unclean food. They would not want to consume some stray gnat that had drowned in the drink. They were scrupulous, carefully checking and double-checking to make sure that the lamb had been properly slaughtered according to Mosaic law. They had one of the men say grace before the meal, and they repeated the Shema together, The Lord our God is one God. And finally they were ready to eat. And while they ate, they discussed how they might murder Jesus. It seems uncomprehensible to us that adult people could be so fixated on minutia and majoring on minors that they could on the one hand do all of those ceremonial things and on the other hand talk about murdering Jesus. And it all seemed perfectly appropriate and normal, clean hands, and dirty hearts. Exterior religion, whitewashed tombs. Their religion was a drug. They were addicted to appearing correct on the outside, but on the inside they were rotten. When there's insecurities about your own beliefs, a person focuses more and more on protecting the beliefs with rules and traditions that will result in a Talmudic catalog of policies and traditions and rules and regulations that seek to protect the faith but end up destroying it. There are those who are concerned about the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. They want to protect it, some by expanding the church manual, some by adding more fundamental beliefs some by constraining things, but a muscular church manual will never be the salvation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They would build a Talmud of church policies to make sure all walk the same narrow path. 
but we will not pass the faith of our fathers to our children through rules and regulations and policies and laws. We pass on the faith by lives of faithfulness, by loving God and loving our neighbor, and by demonstrating that in our churches and in our lives. And we are in the danger Jesus warns us of the moment we settle into unthinking religious routine, doing things because we've always done it that way. We're in danger when our traditions lull us into thinking that we're religious because we do certain things. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. The questions that most must concern us, as Ellen White says, do I believe with saving faith on the Son of God? Is my life in harmony with divine law? Do I love Jesus? Do I talk to him each day? Do I pray to him each day? Do I ask him to direct my life each day? Beware of any who would distract you by majoring on minors. Let us not be lulled into the belief that we're good Christians because of our adherence to traditions, even, may I say, good traditions, and even, may I say, the 28 fundamental beliefs. They're certainly all correct and believable. But when we begin to think that it's those things that save us, we are way off track. You say we, you have faith, James says, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the de demons believe this, and they tremble with terror. The demons believe the right things. They know, anyway, the right things. But they don't live the right things. When I was the pastor of the Collegedale Church, I frequently would complete or conclude a sermon with a story in a mythical forest called Fenton Forest. Some of you may have heard that. It was kind of a way to tie the sermon up at the end with an illustration that I made. Southern Adventist University published a bunch of these books that had a, a few of these stories in it five, uh, five years ago or four years ago for General Conference. I brought about 40 of them Tomorrow, they'll be available for anybody who wants them at the Southern Adventist University booth in the, uh, I think it's Harold Hall, or where they have those booths next door. The reason I'm telling you that right now, because I'm going to conclude with a Fenton Forest story. Once upon a time, Jennifer Jay was elected president of the Forest Beautification Club. She decided that pogo pigs sty needed to be cleaned up. As she put it at the club's first meeting, Pogo's place has been an eyesore in the forest long enough. When the wind is just right or wrong, it not only smells bad, but it's a health hazard. Lightfoot the deer agreed. Anyone, she said, who comes into our community on Forest Lane has to pass right by Pogo's place. And that does not give a good impression of Fenton Forest. The club voted unanimously to clean it up. When Jennifer approached Pogo about her idea, he was not too excited. I and my family are doing just fine, he replied, and we don't need anyone who flies in the air telling us how to live on the ground. 
Jennifer Jay, however, was persistent, and she enlisted the support of the Fenton Forest Health Department and had Pogo's place condemned as a health hazard. We're really doing you a favor, gushed Jennifer, as she told Pogo about the club's plans for his family while the crew she organized did the cleanup job. The, beautifica the beautification club did a great job and cleaned everything out. They built a very nice shed for Pogo and his piglets. The Fenton Forest Beautification Club went home satisfied with the job well done. And it was well done for about a week. One day the wind shifted and the odor from Pogo's new shed drifted over the forest. A group of the members from the beautification club went out to Pogo's place. They found the clean straw had left was mixed with mud in a new mud hole. The shed was half torn down by Pogo scratching himself on the posts and it all looked worse than ever before. The beautification club appealed to wise old owl, do something about this. But he just said, you took the pigsty out of Fenton Forest, but you didn't take it out of Pogo. Eternal Father, help us to live lives with our hearts, understanding that love for God and love for our neighbor are the most important commandments we can ever live. And help us know how better to do that so we will have clean hands and clean hearts. In the name of your Son, amen.